Pulp MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I wanna say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas and I am your host. It's April 17th, also known as Easter Sunday. Flew back from Atlanta to Boise. I was hoping it'd be a little bit warmer today, but it is not. It's supposed to be up to maybe 70 tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to that. I will be heading over to Boston a little bit early this week. See a few of the Western Power Sports and Fly Racing dealers. Get out, see America a little bit, but let's talk about Atlanta. We uh, we were at the Atlanta Motor Speedway. Uh, this is the second year we've been there, and if you remember last year, we had three rounds there over the course of seven days, and it was uh, it was a long stretch there last year. I just remember being at the hotel, and it's it's the downtime that really kind of kills you on those long weeks. So. This year, it's been back to the traditional schedule, all Saturday rounds, and uh, just a quick one this week. In Friday, got there Friday night, uh, down to the track early Saturday morning for the uh, the day race schedule. Encountered some rain, so we had to push the schedule back a little bit. But once it got going, things happened quickly. You know, they had one round of practice, then a break to work on the track, then the futures, and then straight into uh, the afternoon's racing. So it just really felt like a quick trip overall. And uh, yeah, back home and, and time to do this industry seating podcast. I do want to thank the sponsors of this show, Pirelli Tires. We will be giving away a set of Pirelli Tires today. Picked out a question, uh, ready to talk about that later in the show. Guts Racing, check out their RJ Wide Wing Seat. Plum Creek Funding, if you have been paying attention, you have seen rates skyrocketing. It's not a great development. Uh, so if you haven't bought anything, if you're still considering a refi or doing, you, you need to act quickly. Reach out to Zach Morris at Plum Creek Funding. Fast Foundry, reach out to them for any small business, any really any business efficiency needs whatsoever. Works Connection, more hole shots this weekend. Now, Jet Lawrence screwed up some starts, but if you saw Hunter, if you saw Jet, if you saw those guys, even Christian Craig was up there, those guys used a pro-launch start device and typically... They get good starts with it. Pro Glow Wash, Grantstone Boots, and Fly Racing. So speaking of Hunter Lawrence, dude got it done. Solid, solid ride. And, you know, Hunter's one of those guys where he kind of sneaks up on you because his style and his riding and the sprint speed and all those things aren't flashy. It's, uh, it's not something where... Everyone's paying attention to him every time he's on the racetrack. That's just not who he is as a rider. And I don't think that's something he's aiming for. Like, that's not a goal. It's just kind of a nuance of his. You know, when Jet's on the track, when Forkner's on the track, 
when Christian Craig's on the track, they attract attention. And I think it's in their style and the kind of flair that they ride with, where Hunter is a little bit more straightforward. He's uh, a little bit more like, a, I don't know, I, you know, the word I was going to say was bland. I don't think that's fair because he's riding so well and he won a, a showdown race, but he just doesn't have that same spectacular outlandish style that his brother does or some of the other guys I mentioned. That doesn't mean he can't win the race. And you give Hunter a track like Atlanta. And, you know, let's go back to Seattle, right? He wins Seattle. And I talked about it before that event. I felt like Hunter was going to win Seattle because the more difficult the conditions, the less it is about raw speed and you have to deal with some tricky conditions. You have to deal with ruts. You have to deal with a changing racetrack, you know, throughout the race. It, you know, every single lap, that track was changing. Those are things that Hunter does well. And the tracks where it's perfect every single lap, and it's all about sprint speed and how fast are you willing to go through the whoops, that's not really his game. doesn't mean he can't be on the podium and even contend for a win. It's just not his strength. That is the strength of guys like his brother, certainly a guy like Christian Craig. And even I would even go so far as to say a guy like Michael Mosman. Those guys, their strength more fits that. They are willing to send it, you know, air quotes around, send it, and really go for a record-type lap time where Hunter is more consistent lap after lap after lap, and it may come across as boring, but it's incredibly effective. And that's who Hunter is, I can see, and, and he's much better than I was, obviously, right? Results will tell you that really quickly. But I see the same types of things in Hunter's style of riding that I kind of did. I was not flashy. My style wasn't anything impressive. But I could put in the same lap, lap after lap, the same lap time, no mistakes. I didn't crash a lot. And that's kind of who Hunter is as well. So congrats to him. He brings the points lead down a little bit more. And as much as it feels like this championship is over, it's really not. Uh, I mean, Hunter has an opportunity here, right? There, we still have uh, Salt Lake and, and Denver for the West Coast rounds. And the lead is not gigantic. He's less than a race. So if Christian does something silly, the door is still open. Now, of course, Christian is your favorite. It's really up to him whether he wins this or not. You know, Hunter doesn't have that much influence. Christian's the one that will decide this. Can he keep his head, ride within himself, avoid the big mistake? Even if he falls over, it's not the end of the world. He just has to avoid the, the injury and the, and the really large mistake. That's what will keep him from winning this championship. But to Hunter's credit, he's doing everything he can do. You know, that's back-to-back wins for Hunter uh, on that stage. Now, what he would have really helped him is if Christian crashed, got stuck in traffic in a showdown race, and got behind Shimoda and Moseman and Forkner and Jet and all those guys. He didn't do that. Even with a crash, he still ended up second. So he minimized the damage as much as possible. I'm sure he wanted to win, but if you can't win, what's the absolute second best result? Runner up position, you get 23 points, and just keep it moving. If you can get over 20 points per round for Christian, that's fine. You don't even care. Like, I don't care what, you know, if it, I'm speaking for Christian. I don't care what Hunter does. If you're going to give me 20 points a round, 
no problem. I won't even go to the race. If you'll just willingly give me a third place the last two rounds, I'll just stay home. You know, that's hyperbolic, of course, um, but that's the position that Christian's put himself in. Jet, he crashed, right? You cannot crash in these rounds and expect to win. Now, it would have been really interesting to watch that race unfold with Hunter winning, Jet second, and Christian third. I don't really have a strong opinion of how it would have played out. I tend to think Jet wins, but I don't think he's going to force anything stupid with Hunter there. And unless Jet was just going to find a way around, which he can, right? We, we saw him go from 12th or whatever to, to third, just blowing past guys. So maybe he finds a way to just make a move in the whoops, like the way he passed Forkner, just blitzes the whoops one solid time and, and can get around his brother. But I don't think he's going to risk anything, even on the edge, with his, his brother when they're 1-2. He's just not going to take that risk. So I guess gun to my head... I would say Jet ends up winning the race, but yeah, again, you cannot crash. You know, he got off line in the whoops there. His front tire deflected off of that last whoop, which kind of put it at an angle, which on a dry track would have been no big deal. That type of thing happens, you know, 10 times on a practice day and probably three or four times per main event on a dry track. But when the track is slippery and it's muddy and there's no consistency in the dirt that you, so you can't trust it. If you're tired to flex like that and you land at an angle, it's just going to push. And that's what you saw happen. If that's a dry racetrack, nothing happens. Like it, the, the tire catches, maybe he has to take his foot off the peg for half a second, but he certainly doesn't crash. It was the mud on the kind of the edge of the track where people weren't going. You know, it hadn't really got, you know, the, the dozer had gone there but no bikes had been there. So there was just this slimy, wet surface of clay and it, the front tire just pushed right across the top of it and he lost his balance. And he wasn't really expecting it, right? He was expecting his front tire to absorb that and to catch and to provide traction. And there was just none to be had. It was just too slippery uh, in that exact spot. So Jed ends up on the ground, but still a hell of a ride. I mean, he comes back to third uh, it, it felt like a coulda, woulda, shoulda type event for Jet. And there's been a lot of that lately. You go back to St. Louis, probably should have won that overall, right? He crashes in the finale. But I, I don't think you could argue that he, you know, he was the best guy. He was the best rider in St. Louis. And you could even argue he was the best rider in Atlanta. Now, his brother Hunter would probably put his hand up and say, hey, uh, no, what about me? Right? I, I won. I was never really contested once I got into the lead. That's fair. I get it, um, but I, I still think that Jet was the best rider at that race. He just making silly mistakes, and I have been very vocal in the fact that he is a rider that does a great job of avoiding those mistakes, but he's proving me wrong lately, right? You go back to Arlington, that was a bad one. That was a just catastrophic event for Jet, but St. Louis, he did it again. And then this weekend, he did it again. So he needs to, it's, it's very easy to say, yeah, you just got to get rid of the mistakes. Uh, uh, got it, right? RJ Hampshire could be saying that for several years now, and he hasn't been able to do it. Wasn't able to do it again on Saturday. So it's easy to say, it's easy to diagnose that, yeah, man, just stop crashing and everything will work out. Great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the, uh, you know, just beautiful insight there. That's really hard. You know, when, you, when the guy's laying on the ground, it's, it's not hard to figure out what the problem is. 
but I do think he'll figure it out. I think, um, you know, as he matures, which he is in the process of, right, that's a, that's a long, even look at Chase Sexton, right? He's a two-time 250 champion. He's in the mix to win 450 races, and he still cannot get rid of those mistakes. So that maturing process, everybody's different. It just, you, there's no real solid timetable that you can just point to and say, yep, you know what, by the time Jet's 20, he'll have it all figured out. Well, I'm sure if Sexton, if, you know, Sexton be like, okay, great, I'm past 20, can I, can I have that now? Because I'm tired of, I'm really tired of crashing. So when it's time, Jet will figure that out. And I think he's on his way. I think he is much wiser than his years would indicate. Um, it's just the small little variance he's got he's to work out. But I do believe he absolutely will. Uh, Forkner, I was really impressed. I mean, if you look at his day, he qualified incredibly well, was blazing fast. He was in the mix in the, you know, the heat races and all those things. I mean, he was doing everything right, battling up front, passing, moving forward, everything you'd want to see out of him. Just, you know, the main event didn't go his way. And, you know, Jet was able to pass him and there were mistakes in there. It wasn't the end of the world. I thought it was actually a pretty nice return day for Forkner. Now, if you want to look at the overall result, he's probably not thrilled with that. Okay, I, I get it. And there's, there's a fair reason to not be happy with. I think he got seventh. But I think if you just big picture and you frame out a little bit and you just say, okay, this series has been a disaster. I got hurt. I had to have my you know, collarbone plated. I come back in Atlanta. Don't really know what to expect. It's got both coasts on it. How's it going to go? I think if you look at the day overall, the speed, the competitiveness, the aggressiveness, I think it was a success. Just relax on the seventh place. I, I don't think you have to focus on the fact that it was a seventh. I think you can focus on the positives. You can look for silver linings, and I think they're there. I, I, if I'm Mitch Payton, I leave there going, okay, we can build on this. Now, was it the day we wanted? No. Did we want to be on the podium? Of course. But he showed all the things all the promise, the potential, the speed, the reasons he's on my team, again, and this is Mitch Payton talking, the reasons he's on my team and I pay him really well, I saw it on Saturday. I saw those things in him on Saturday. So I think it will be really important for Austin to go to Foxborough and continue to build on that, right? He needs to come out swinging again. He needs to show great pace and qualifying practice. He needs to be in the battle at the front. And if he does... I don't think there's a lot to worry about. I think that's what people expect from him. And like the, the championship's over. Like we know that, right? He's only, this is only the, the third race he's raced, but it gives him momentum going into the, the shoot, the showdown or whatever at the finale in Salt Lake. It gives him momentum going into the motocross series, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, which wasn't a good series for him last year. He did not ride well last summer. The, the end was a little bit better, but it is not been a successful run for Austin in a very long time. So I'm just looking for things to build off of, something you can really latch onto and say, okay, we're onto something here. Like things are trending in the right direction. And I personally felt like Saturday was that. Just, you know, forget about the result. It wasn't exactly perfect, but um, I left with a, an impressed, like I was impressed, right? That was my impression was it was positive. 
and, and I hope that their, he and their team are kind of the same way. Shimoda, his teammate, last 250 guy I had a note on. Uh, I was kind of the opposite. And, and it sounds crazy to me because Shimoda led the race. He battled up front. Like there were so many good things about Shimoda's day. But I truly believe that if you're going to be there and you're going to be that relevant in the race and leading laps and like, you got to stay there. You can't get shuffled back. You can't allow those guys to pass. You can't let jet crash, catch you and pass you on the last lap. And I, maybe that's coming down too harsh on Shimoda and I'm not trying to be harsh. All I'm doing is relaying my impression of the day. Shimoda did so many things well. He rode so incredibly strong at the beginning. His pace was fast. You see him pulling away from Hunter Lawrence. And I'm like, damn, he might win. He might win this race. And then all of a sudden, he doesn't even get on the podium. That was such a letdown. And, you know, I wasn't focused on him. I was kind of watching Jet work through the pack. And I was watching Christian to see if he was going to pass Hunter. So, Maybe there were some, there were a few mistakes in there that I didn't catch and I could, I should be pointing to those mistakes, but when I see him out front and pulling away at the beginning, and then I see him not even get on the podium at the end, that's a little bit disappointing. And I think if you are his team, you probably feel the same way. You're not, you know, kicking lawn chairs over at, at the semi after the race. It's, it's not catastrophic. But I think you have to feel like you left an opportunity on the table and you didn't take advantage of so much positive from that main event, right? He made it such a great move at the start of the main event, sweeping around, uh, who was it, Hunter and Jet in that first corner. Like, that was brilliant. That was such a great veteran move right there. And I just felt like it was a, a disappointment to not be standing on the podium at the end of the night. It's, I, I understand it's hard, right? You're dealing with three incredibly talented riders that are veterans. And, you know, Jet's not so much a veteran, but he's arguably one of the best riders we've seen come through this class in, in a generation. Um, then you see Christian Craig, who's 31 years old and going to be your champion, most likely. And then you have Hunter Lawrence, who is a veteran of both Europe and America. So he's up against a lot. Um, I just felt like there, there was a podium in the cards there, and he wasn't able to uh, kind of capitalize. 450 class, I mean, Anderson, he deserved to win. You know, it, it really came down to one section for me. I mean, that, that that three in and then quad out was the paramount reason he was your winner. And yes, of course, he was riding well around the rest of the track. That goes without saying you can't win the race just because of one section. But when most other things are equal, because I think Tomac was as fast or faster on the rest of the racetrack. If you do a section like that and you go three, four, it was, I don't know, maybe a full second faster than doing two, uh, what was it? Two, two, three. That's enough. You know, he was able to pull a gap and make his life so much easier. The, the second half of the race, he wasn't cruising. I don't want, you know, I don't even want to pretend like he was just riding around, but he could. He could take it easy in some sections because he built up such a gap with that 3-4. And I felt bad. You know, we're at the race, and um, I think his name's Joseph Allen, the guy that's kind of on the floor announcing or whatever. 
Well, he picks up on this Jason Anderson quad about 15 minutes into the race. It was really late. But, I mean, this is how Anderson built up his lead was, you know, basically matching the fastest pace around the track and then pulling this 3-4 and then just gapping everybody. Uh, And then just that Joseph Allen guy kind of loses his mind going crazy about it three quarters of the way through the race. And I think everybody was just kind of shaking their head about it, but it's whatever. Like if you were at home, you know, watching on Peacock app or whatever, you, you have no idea this is going on, but all of us that were at the race, uh, it was a pretty funny moment, but I want to give credit to Anderson because it has not been easy lately, right? It's been up and down and crashes and mistakes, and he's given away a lot of points along the way, but he was picture perfect on Saturday. I didn't see any big mistakes. I really didn't see any close calls. And he was willing to also jump a section that other people weren't willing to do. And not only did, you know, I think Sexton did it a few times. or You know, other guys tried it. I think Tomac did it a couple times as well. But he did it consistently. He was able to get out of that corner, hit that three, and then most of the laps he was still able to go for four. And it did. It wasn't easy. I walked down to that corner, and the ruts coming out of that turn to go three in were brutal. And that's why those guys were doubling out of the corner. You don't see guys like Eli Tomac, Malcolm Stewart, Barsha, Sexton. You know, take your pick, the best of the best. You don't see them doubling out of a corner like that, where you where you can go three, very often. That just that's not a a, a common situation. Most of the time, they're going to put it in first gear which they have a, you know, a longer first gear on their factory transmissions. And they're just going to seat bounce into the thing. And they would shift up to second in the air and hit that four. Like that's going to be 90% of the races. The conditions, right, that heavy rain on Saturday morning made the track soft. It made the surface inconsistent. And it, you know, basically took that triple out of the corner away from them. Now, if that was at a practice track, those guys probably do it most of the time, but racing is different. You know, for, for Tomac especially, the only thing he really has to avoid is catastrophe. You know, going over the bars on that triple, coming up short, doing anything stupid is the only thing that can keep him away from this title. So I get it for Tomac. If you're coming out of that corner and everything's not perfect, you're not going to go for it. You're going to back out of it, where for Anderson title's pretty much over. He's 50 over 50 points down or was, you know, 56 points down going into the race. You're just, you're going to go for the win, right? And if that means maybe pushing the limit a little bit and and pulling that three, four, so be it. It's worth it. You know, they probably may, he probably makes 150 grand to win that race when all is said and done. So it's worth, it's worth taking some risk there. And to Anderson's credit, he had it dialed. He, he really didn't, have any close close calls in that section. I kind of mentioned Tomac there, but it was just kind of a methodical main event for him. Nothing crazy, nothing, you know, out of the norm. I don't think he took a lot of risk, right? He just allowed the race to kind of come to him. You know, Barsha crashes, Sexton crashes, and that's really been his MO over the last month. If you go back and you look at his rounds, Indy, Detroit, like, he didn't force anything. Seattle, he got the start, so life was pretty easy. But he has just been letting things come to him. You know, that one main event in St. Louis, he didn't, he wasn't able to move up. He didn't freak out. He just took the fourth. And that's okay. Like, he's in a similar situation to 
where Jet Lawrence is and where Christian Craig are, where they don't have to force anything. They can allow the situation to unfold. And if it goes their way, great. If it doesn't, just take whatever points are on the table and move on, right? Tomac can say, you know what? I tip my cap to you, Jason Anderson. You were great today. And I'll see you in Foxborough and we'll, we'll see how it goes there. But guess what? I still have two full races of a points lead over you, right? And that's just the gap that he has afforded himself so he can be smart. He can, again, beating a dead horse, but he can just let the race come to him and make decisions in the moment and reassess, you know, get to halfway. Am I going to be able to catch Anderson? Doesn't look like it. Okay, great. I'll just take a second and I'll take the 23 points and uh, my championship will be looking better than ever. It's fine, right? Time is on his side. You know, for Anderson, time is not on his side. He needs, he needs disaster to strike Tomac and he needs it to happen right now. So there's two completely differing variables as we go down the stretch where, you know, Tomac's just like every lap that clicks off is a lap closer to me winning this title. And as long as I stay upright, nothing to worry about. And that, you know, the sand is going through the hourglass for Anderson where he's just running out of time for kind of that shoot a drop for Tomac. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I, I think Tomac is in too good of a place. He looks too confident and too comfortable for anything to go on. And I think he'll be your champ. That, that's it. Uh, Chase Sexton, I mean, wh- what do you say? Like, he, he cannot figure out a way to stop crashing. I think he wins that race, right? I, because I think he would, would have been willing to send that 3-4 with Anderson if he needed to. Now, I'm speculating there. Maybe Anderson would have figured it out and would have had too much pace. But when I watched Sexton, the way he was riding, I don't think he was in any condition to give the race to Anderson, right? It would have been absolute war. And if you know Sexton saw Anderson start pulling that jump and was like, okay, I got to do it or I'm not going to win, I think he would have gone for it. And I don't always think that's a good thing. I think that way of thinking is part of the reason why you're seeing him crash so often. Now, this crash wasn't a big deal. He just lost the front end. But it's also testimony to other crashes, right? He's putting so much pressure on the front tire there and trusting it so much that he crashes. And I think he over-trusts himself and the bike many times. You've seen it so often throughout this series where he is over the line of sustainability. And that also makes him incredibly uh, capable of winning and dangerous to these other guys as far as a week in and week out result. But he's, I mean, make no mistake, he has been his own worst enemy. At many of these rounds, the only person, the only person that could beat Chase Sexton was Chase Sexton. And he's got to figure that out. One of these crashes is going to bite him. I'm, I'm calling it right now. And I don't want this. I, I, Trust me, no one's, I don't want to see anybody get hurt. But I'm telling you, if you continue to crash, you look back over the course of this season and see how many times Chase Sexton has crashed, it's shocking. And thankfully, he's okay. Like, I think he brings a lot to the sport. I absolutely love watching the dude ride. His ability to ride a motorcycle and visually how just attractive you know, his style is like, I would kill to be able to do 
those things on a motorcycle and look that way. Like he looks like he was born to race supercross. The problem is, is that these crashes add up and you keep hitting the deck. One of them, you're going to land wrong. The bike's going to hit you. Something's going to break. It's just, it's just a matter of time. And it's, it's just playing the percentages. And I don't want that. I want him to stop crashing. I don't want that to happen. I just want him to figure this out so he can develop into where Eli Tomac is, where they're basically the same speed, but you don't see Tomac crashing. Okay, we, you know, we saw one big mistake from Tomac, right? He comes out of the bridge, catches that berm, you know, and, and he was pushing too hard and gets that huge swap back and forth, right? His legs come off. And I think that was the moment Tomac's like, okay, I'm done. I was pushing. I was going to try to win the race, but I found my limit. I almost crashed and we're done here. Like I'm not going to risk the bigger picture to try to chase down Jason Anderson. And you saw him kind of pull a tear off and he's like, okay, that's, that's enough of that. Like if you could, you know, read his internal thoughts and be inside his brain, I'm pretty sure it would have been something like that. Like, well, that's enough of that. We're going to back it down about 2% and we're just going to bring this thing home. And when I watch Sexton, I don't see that very often. I've seen it some. I, I have seen it. I will be honest and say that it's there. It's just not there often enough. The Chase Sexton where he's just going for it and it's win at all costs, I see too often. And if you want to talk about how you become a 450 Supercross champion and motocross champion... It's not the send side. It's the ride within your means, and those means are incredibly fast. That's how you get there. And I, don't, I, don't, I couldn't do it, so I'm not going to try to tell anybody how to do it because I don't know. But I know it when I see it, and you can see it in Tomac. You could see it in Dungey. You could see it in Villapoto. Like those guys were able to run the pace that it took to win without taking incredible chances. That is the recipe. And it's a really difficult thing and a difficult level to attain. Not everybody's ever going to get there. But I personally believe that Sexton can. And that's the only reason that I really bring it up. Other guys, I don't really talk about it because I don't think that they have it. I don't think they can do it. I don't think Barsha is going to just flip a switch somehow and turn into your champion. I don't see that happening. I don't think he is fast enough week in and week out to do it. Now, can he be on the podium? be a top five guy most of the year and end up top three or four in points. Yes. He's proven that good for him. He's going to retire a multimillionaire because of it. I just think that Chase Sexton is capable of more. I think he has more in him than that. I think he can win races consistently. I think he can be your champion moving forward. And I think he will. I think he figures it out eventually. I just kind of thought he was already there and he's proving that he's not. And whatever, do with that with what you will. It's just my, uh, my observation on it. Cooper Webb, I mean, decent day for a rider that I didn't expect to even be at the track. Um, I didn't think we would see him until next January. I still don't believe that he races this outdoor championship. Um, I, I don't really have hard evidence as to why, but I just don't see it. I, I think... Um, I think he bails on this series, and I think he gets ready for Supercross. He works on getting the chassis right. I, I just think his heart is not really in this right now. Now, part of the reason I think that he may forego 
this motocross series is because of all this Jeffrey Hurlings talk, right? Like, I think the Jeffrey Hurlings thing would be a nice move to put into this series, and it would take pressure off of Webb. Now, if Hurlings decides to stay home, maybe Webb races outdoors. I don't know, and we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out. You just hear whispers that Webb's not really practicing motocross, and he should be, and and not really excited about. I don't know, right? They're just where there's smoke, there's fire. We'll see what happens. But I personally am, am really hoping that we see Jeffrey Hurlings come over because I think that would be the story of the year. And it would take some pressure off of Webb. Um, I think, you know, it's been a really rough and tumble Supercross series for Webb. He came in with a ton of pressure, switched trainers, switched practice compounds, got a new chassis that he wasn't happy with. Uh, and it's been, I would guess, a very stressful, you know, five months, four months for, uh, for Cooper Webb. So we'll see how this all plays out. Um, I'm just kind of keeping my eye on that situation with Hurlings and maybe, maybe he fills in for Webb. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Webb comes out and wins the first round of Paula and I look like an idiot, but we'll see. Uh, Marvin, you know, teammates with Webb comes off a win in St. Louis. I think everybody was looking for continuation out of him and crashes on the first lap and it was pretty much all she wrote. You know, that's, you go down on the first lap of a main event like that. You're not catching Tomax and Sexton's and Mookie and those guys. Uh, he did fight back and got 10th. I actually think he crashed again. I think he crashed like midway through the race. Um, but he did come back to 10th, got some points, whatever. He's obviously still healthy if you got 10th. And uh, yeah, just take it to Foxborough where he has been historically very, very good. Um, you know, over the years, Foxborough has been very kind to him, as has uh, these final few rounds. Like he always seems to finish these series very strongly. So look for that trend to continue. I would look for a really nice bounce back ride as we go to Foxborough. Mookie, not a great day. Uh, I, I've heard that the, the knee is not great. Um, I don't have a, um, a diagnosis for it. I don't know exactly what's wrong. I just heard from more than one person that it wasn't great. And he's definitely nursing through this injury. So let's, let's keep an eye on that. I don't know if it's something that's going to require surgery or require time off, or does this have affect his outdoor status? Like, I don't know any of those things, but when I saw him race the last race at St. Louis, and then I, I didn't hear anything about it coming into Atlanta, I figured he was fine. I'm like, oh, he's good. Like, no problem. But when I hear that it, it is a problem, then I start to worry because you know, knees are tough. And if a doctor tells you like, this isn't going to get any better, we're probably going to have to get this fixed. You automatically start thinking about timelines and no matter what, no matter what, he needs to be a hundred percent healthy come next January. Now he's going to want to race motocross series. You know, Rockstar Husqvarna hired him to race this motocross series and they lost Dean Wilson, right? They need him out there. But if he has to choose between getting his knee fixed and being 100% next January or foregoing some of this summer's Lucas Oil Pro Motocross, I think we, can, we know how that's going to go. We've seen that decision be made in the past, and I'm really hoping that's not what the situation is. I don't know that he would be racing right now if that was the case. You, know, you could make the argument that he's racing for points and he wants to get, you know, stay in this battle for you know, being in the, on the podium at the end of the series. Like there's a shot at that. So maybe that's why he's toughing out an injury that otherwise he wouldn't be. 
Um, but really, we don't have any clarity. I don't know what's wrong. You know, if somebody told me, hey, this is what the, the MRI showed, I would tell you immediately what would likely happen. But I don't know because I've had two knee injuries. I know a lot about it. Um, and I could kind of tell you what his likely decision would be. But unfortunately, again, I don't, uh, I don't have that information. So let's see. We'll just kind of play it by ear. And if any info comes out, that'll give us some, some uh, idea as to what we're looking at. But as you know, just for right now, I'm just hearing that the knee's not great. Barsha, really the only note I, I had for him was um, that he's just trying too hard. And, you know, I don't, there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I don't think he really had the pace that he wanted. And I think he was pushing harder than he, he could really sustain. And then you just see a crash. And there's nothing like that's a part of the game, right? You don't want to go slower than the guys around you. So you're going to you're going to get excited. You're going to push the front a little bit. You're going to try to find time. And he just tipped over. It wasn't a bad race. It wasn't a bad day. I mean, he was leading the damn race. You know, he got the whole shot. So there are plenty of positives to leave the race with if you're Barsha. Um, I just think he, he gets into those moments where he's not as fast as Anderson. He's not as fast as Sexton. He's not as fast as Tomac. And he's getting passed and he's getting pissed. And then he just makes a mistake. He just tries a little bit too hard, makes a mistake, and goes down. So it's, it's nothing to really be, you know, uh, it's nothing to insult or to condemn or anything like that. Um, it's just a part of it, right? When you're going backwards, you're going to try to push harder. And, um, yeah, sometimes you, you tip over because of that. So I didn't do the power rankings this week. Um, you know, we're, our results are, I don't know, the series is just in a tough place right now. There's not a lot of... Uh, suspense. The championships are all but decided. So format's a little bit different this week. I just kind of wanted to talk about uh, what my thoughts were for the event. Of course, we'll get back to the power rankings. It's a staple of this podcast, especially when we get into Lucas Oil Pro Motocross. They'll be back. But just with so many injuries, it would just be the same top 10 every single time. And there's really no movement. Like it's, you know, it would just be Tomac and then Anderson and then Webb and then, you know, like or Sexton, then Webb, like, there's not a lot of movement in there. Like, we have such a, an established trend over, you know, the last 13 or 14 rounds that you know what they're going to be, I know what they're going to be, and I would be filling in blanks at the back of the power rankings. Like, some of these guys, I don't even know who I'd put in, you know, 9 and 10. So, it's fine, we'll be back to it, but I just want to give it a little explanation there. Foxborough's up next, um, you know, I just feel like the series is going through the motions at this point, and that's it sucks, right? It's a disservice to how great Monster Energy Supercross is and how great the show is. And for all the people that are in New England and they're coming to the event next week, they won't feel like the series is going through the motions. They're going to be pumped to be there. But for a guy like myself or any of the people that have been in every round, it just feels a little robotic right now. It really does because so many of these things have been decided championship wise or not uh, not mathematically but for all intents and purposes they have and we're just kind of getting through the rounds now and uh yeah hopefully we get some great racing to kind of spice it up but uh, just the air got sucked out of these championships by dominant performance like you know good for them good for tomac good for jet good for christian craig they did what they had to do but uh yeah the all of us fans um you know and that's that's what i am more than anything is just a fan we all kind of lose in that scenario. Just 
a little bit of the interest wanes there. But let's jump into uh, the question I have picked here for uh, this set of Pirelli tires. So this is at, from Adam Tepfer, and I apologize if that's pronounced incorrectly. But his question is, why don't we see more American riders competing in the MXGP series? Also, what would it take to see more American riders compete overseas? So there are two sides to this question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand on your question a little bit, Adam. And we're going to go back in time a little bit, okay? If you look back over the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, you saw guys like Albertine, um, you know, take your pick, Sebastian Tortelli, John-Michel Bale, uh, you know, Ken Roxon, Marvin Muskan. Just go down the list of European riders that came to America to race. They race, came to race Supercross. They came to race Motocross. Now, why did they do that, right? M- many of you listening are too young to even remember that stuff. You, maybe you know, you know their names. You watched them on TV. You saw them on Moto World. But you don't know what was going on. You don't know the dynamic of what brought them over. And it was really consistent. The same dynamic that brought uh, Greg Albertine over in the 90s is the same dynamic that brought Ken Roxon over in 2011 or whenever he came over. And it's nothing, it's not anything but money, okay? Now, there, there are other aspects to it. American lifestyle, Supercross is pretty awesome. It's a, it's a really cool way of racing and it's a, it's a different type series. You're in big cities. But to not call out the elephant in the room, which was money, would it wouldn't be factually correct. Um, for years, the American series combined, those teams and OEMs and the factories and energy drinks and whoever combined offered a much nicer financial package than Europe did, the GP teams did. That's just, that's just fact, that there is no getting around that point. And all those guys came over for that, right? Look at Chad Reed. One of my, you know, he's one of my best friends for years. Okay. He left Europe in 01, came to America in 02. And by 03 was making, I don't know, 10 times what he made in Europe, 20 times what he made in Europe, something insane. Okay. Like that's how much more he was making. Now that's an outlier case, but all those guys came over and made way more money, way, 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 way more money at least double, triple, four times, whatever. You know, if you start winning championships, it gets, it can get really nutty as far as how much more money those guys can make. And it's not until recently. And that's why you haven't seen Jorge Prado come over. That's why you haven't seen Jeffrey Hurlings, why he decided to stay several years ago. Like all those guys, the new talent is staying in Europe because those teams and those, the, the factory efforts over there realized if we don't do this, if we don't start paying our guys, Tim Geiser was another perfect example. You saw him testing the water at Monster Cup. Those guys were going to come over. They were going to leave. They were going to do the same thing, follow the same path that those stars of yesteryear and current did. But those teams stepped up. They got onto the level of the American pay packages because they realized if they didn't, they were going to continue to lose all their talent. They were never going to be able to keep their guys that they had invested in for years and years. And the MXGP series was getting talent depleted because of it. That's not the case anymore. So guys like Jeffrey Hurling, guys like Tim Geiser, guys like Roman Fevra, 
Prado, Cairoli um, are on a little bit less, but definitely Fevre, Geyser, and Hurlings. Those three are on the same level as the American guys. And that's for the first time ever, ever. Like in the, in the history of these two series, is that the case? That's not been the situation. I've talked to riders about it for years, about the pay differences and whatever when they left and when they came over. So that's why they're able to retain talent now. That's not necessarily what Adam's question was, but I felt like that was a lot of, that was context and background that we needed for this question. And that's, you know, I have people ask me all the time, it's like, why aren't those guys coming over anymore? That's why. They're getting paid. A guy like Hurlings is making a couple million, if not more, from Red Bull KTM, where that same rider, you know, okay, that's what, that's what the pay, and, and let's just clear that for now. That's what the, basically the going rate is for a winning level rider in America is between two and three million from the team. Okay, and that, that would be Monster Star Yamaha, that would be Monster Kawasaki, you know, uh, American Honda. That's the rate. Tomac, Roxon, um, you know, anybody at that very tippy top level. They're getting two plus million. And that's not counting gear. That's not counting goggles. That's not counting helmets. That's not counting a lot of other things. Okay. A guy like Hurlings, 10 years ago, if he was as good as he is now, instead of getting two, three, four million, whatever he's getting, he would be getting like, I don't know, 300K, right? Like that's what it would be. And he would be making his 300,000, maybe add in another 100,000 for gear. So say he's six, 700,000 all in for salary 10 years ago. That would be the level. And he's looking across the pond over at Villapoto, Dungey, Reed, Stewart. And those guys are making, you know, at the time, probably the top would be 5 million. Stewart's deal with L&M Yamaha in 2009 and 2010, it was the same deal that Reed had in six, seven, and eight was 5 million. Okay, that's not counting gear. That's not counting goggles, boots, outside sponsors. I'm not counting any of that, okay? It was a $5 million deal that Stewart absorbed that Reed didn't sign. And there was, there's a whole drama that went on behind the scenes there. So Hurlings is looking over, and he's, Hurlings wasn't mature yet, but let's just say Hurlings was, right? In the, in the form that Hurlings is on right now, looking across and saying, God, I'm just as good as those guys. I'm just as big of a star. I'm capable of, I could probably even beat them. And they make six or seven million a year for when, when they win the championship, maybe more. You know, Stu, I think Stu made upwards of 10 million a couple of years. I'm going to make maybe 800,000, 900,000 if I win the championship. Like, that's crazy. You know, maybe, maybe he could stretch it to a million if he won a bunch of races and the championship. So he's like, I got to get out of here. I got to go to Europe. That's why guys like Roxon and Muscan and those guys were on the next flight over. That's because they could make 10x of the money. And, it, it, you know, okay, maybe 8x of the money. But that's an insane amount of money more to be able to make both realized and potential earnings. Okay, and it, you go back to a few years ago and Red Bull KTM and, and HRC Honda both didn't want to lose their guys. So Geyser got a huge deal. I think he's up in that $2 million range now. I know Jeffrey Hurlings is, and that's not even counting, you know, uh, Hurlings' Alpine Stars deal, which is gigantic. I know for a fact it's, it's a very, very lucrative deal for Hurlings. 
Then you fact, okay, think about this. Hurlings is on a deal now on the American level because they needed to keep him where he's getting like 100000 a win, okay? And that's like the team bonus. You know, when I said earlier that like Anderson's winning 150000 last night in Atlanta, that's say 100 k from the team, you know, 10 plus from the track, you know, outside sponsors, like he wears Scott Goggles, he gets a bonus from them, he gets a bonus from Alpine Stars, he gets a bonus, bonus, bonus. I'm just saying there's another 50 grand in between prize money and outside bonuses to get to that 150. So Hurlings is getting that same thing. You go back a couple of years ago, think about when Hurlings won 18 GPs. <laughs> he, he made another 1.8 plus, right? Whatever else, I don't know what Alpine Stars bonuses are. I don't know what his Oakley bonuses are. I don't know any of those numbers. I know they're good, but let's say he made another 2.2 in bonuses plus a championship is probably a million. So that's now your three, 3.2 on top of his salary, which is like two or 3 million. He's getting into that, you know, rare air, that five, six, seven, eight million, right? And that's where, I know that's a wide range, but I'm trying to leave some room there because I don't know, I don't know the hard numbers. I can just get close, but let's say it's, let's say it's 6 million. That's really good money. Okay. And he's going to forego any American dream or, you know, that longing feeling like he wanted to try his hand over here. He can stay in Europe, what he's comfortable with speaking his own language, living in his hometown, his family around him. He doesn't have to go to try to learn supercross. You know, he, he can do what he knows how to do. He knows he can win over there. He doesn't have to worry about it. And he can make $6 million, okay? That is why you're seeing those guys stay home. That's why you're seeing Geister be like, nah, I'm good. I'll stay here. Because Geister's probably making $3 million this year. When it's all said and done, he'll probably go over that with as many races as he's winning. He may make $4 million. That's crazy money. Like, that's life-changing. You'll never have to work again type money. And that's where the huge change came in and why you're not seeing those guys come over anymore. Okay, so we're done with that side. Now let's go into why Americans aren't going over. And it's, it's a similar answer. The money is the biggest part of that. And that's why you only saw guys that were at the end of their career or couldn't find a ride. That's why you went to Europe. It's because your options here had run out or they were very, very slim. And maybe you got a factory offer to go to Europe that was better than any offer you had here. That was why you saw those guys go over, Rhino, Mike Brown, that dynamic. Now, the one outlier to this whole scenario was Ryan Villopoto, okay? Ryan didn't want to race. I don't know why I'm calling him Ryan. It's RV to everybody. He didn't want to race Supercross in 2015. Did not want to. He had come off the 2014 championship. He wanted to be done. Like He, he was happy with how that went. He won his championship. He was, you know, like I remember being around in the last few rounds and uh, Casey Stoner, MotoGP legend, was around. And, you know, after the race, he's just drinking beers. And, like, you could just see he was, like, done with that, all that pressure and all that competitiveness. He didn't want that anymore, okay? The problem was is that RV had another year on his Kawasaki contract. And it was for big money. It was 2.5 million-ish range. I, I don't hold me to that. Don't quote me to that. But it's that's a close guess to what it would have been. Two five is close. Kawasaki wanted him to race, right? They had he's coming off of four Supercross championships in a row. They wanted him to go make good on that, and they were pressuring him 
to race. They didn't want him to retire because they didn't want to hand over championships to Ryan Dungey, who was the, you know, he was next. They knew, everybody knew that if Villapoto left, Dungey's going to go on a championship run here for a while because there was really nobody else that could compete with those guys. And, and that's what we saw in the end. Okay. So RV had a decision to make. Did he want to collect that paycheck from Cowie? Yes. Right. Did he have to? No. But did he want to? Yes. So he got creative and basically said, I'm not racing Supercross. We need to find a way for me to go race somewhere else and me still get this money. Well, that ended up being MXGP for 2015. That was the solution to it. And if you go back, okay, and if you ever want to do the homework and do the research, go find pictures or video of Ryan Villapoto's face in 2014, okay? Pictures of his face. Then go find pictures of his face at the first round of MXGP in 2015, and you will see the difference. Like it was, I don't know, 10 or 15 pounds is what I'm going to guess. But that was the effort level that Ryan didn't, did not put in for 2015. And when I, I I'll never forget this. I'll, I, it's stamped into my memory. I was in Atlanta in the press box watching. I think they were at Qatar, right? Opening round was Qatar, Cotter, however you want to say it. And I remember them panning down the line of before the race. And I saw Villapoto's face and I hadn't seen him at all, right? He had been riding some in California, riding some in Florida, riding some in Europe, whatever, getting ready. I saw his face and I'm like, oh my God, he's going to get smoked. Like it was just so clear to me because I knew he wasn't prepared. I knew he wasn't on Alden's program. I knew he wasn't on Alden's diet. I knew he wasn't on all the workouts and just the relentless discipline training that Alden, you know, that's why RV was so unbeatable. That's why Dungey was so unbeatable. That's why you see that program. You saw Webb so, you know, difficult to deal with is it's the whole package. It's mental, it's physical, it's diet. It's every, you're, you're a, just a robot of motorcycle racing when you're on Alden Baker's program. And I could see the weight in RV's face that he hadn't been doing the work, right? He had been, I'm sure he'd been riding. I'm sure he'd been bicycling. I'm sure he had been eating relatively well, but not on the level that made him what he is. Not the guy that was a four-time champion that just nobody could touch and good luck beating that dude in a championship. You might as well just pack it in. That's not the RV that I saw sitting on the line in the Middle East. And I just remember, I, I said it in the press box. I had my VIP program and they were, you know, we're all kind of tuning in and I'm like, he's screwed. Like, he ain't gonna, He ain't gonna win like that. That is not... That's not RV. This is, and, I, and I was actually bummed and a little angry because if you guys remember, there was so much hype and so much trash talking going on between both sides about how this was going to go. And I was actually being 100% honest, I was a little mad at RV because I didn't feel like he held up his end of the bargain with this deal. Like if you're going to go there and you're going to represent the USA and everybody's riding, you know, they're wrapping ourselves in the flag to cheer you on and have your back. Dude, you got to go in prepared. You have to be ready because we're all counting on you. And that sounds really, again, hyperbolic, but it's how it was. I was mad. I'm like, dude, you're going to get smoked. And then every, all these guys, all these, you know, Euro media riders, fans, they're all going to talk crap and say our series sucks and they're way better. 
and you, you know, we all talked you up and you're getting your butt kicked. And I was bummed. And he did. He didn't do well. Series, he didn't even make it, you know, through three or four rounds or whatever, and he was out. So I was pissed. Now, that's a very long-winded way to explain or lead me to explain why he was there, right? He went there because he wanted the Kawasaki paycheck. Now, he was incredibly smart, and his agent, Bobby Nichols, they even got more money out of this deal. They went to MXGP. They went to these other sponsors and said, hey, we will bring Ryan Villapoto to your, to your series if you make it financially worth our while. We, we are trying to decide what we're going to do. We don't necessarily know if we're going to race Supercross again. We're, we may just retire altogether and you know eat, eat that salary or pay some money back that we have to give to Kawasaki. But they got a better deal to go to UMXGP. Like if you're Giuseppe Luongo and you have that offer on the table, like you can get Villapoto to your series. He's all over that because he can go sell that to his sponsors and say, hey, we're going to get the biggest star in the world in our series. Like you guys all got to step up a little bit here and help me cover this bill. Um, but that was why you saw Villapoto. It wasn't just the fact that he's like, I'm going to go over there. And it's always, you know, you hear this all the time. I'd love to go race GPs before I retire. I want to see what that's all about. You know, Barsha's said that for years. Like all these guys always say that. But in the end, money talks, right? <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Well, for that deal, the money worked out in Villapoto's favor to go to Europe for once. And that's why he went. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the fact that he just wanted to go. Like, oh, I want to go to Europe. No. He was flying back and forth. He wasn't even staying in Europe. He wasn't living there or doing it. He was flying. He was going to fly back and forth the entire series. So you tell me how much he wanted to be over there, right? That, that should tell you in a nutshell right there. But that's, that was the difference for both Villapoto. Now, I still haven't really answered what your main question is, is why don't we see more Americans going over? And that is, it's difficult. It's really hard to go over there to not, you know, people don't speak the language the food is different. The weather is not great. You know, it's pretty decent in summer, but if you're going to go race GPs, you got to go over in the winter and spend the entire winter there and practice and test and ride Wamo every day and ride in the sand because that's what you're going to be racing in and you have to go prepare for it. That's just, that's the only way you can be successful over there is to go all in. You can't fly back and forth. You can't try to train like, an, you know, train like you're racing in America and then go race in Europe. You will absolutely get your ass kicked because the, the tracks are totally different. They're absolutely different style racetracks. The prep is different. The dirt's different. Um, the, the race format's different. It's all, it's a completely different series altogether in every single way. So I don't think most Americans want to do that. I don't think they want to move to Europe and strange food and bad weather. And you can't, you know, get around as easily because you can't read any of the signs. They're all in, you know, you're probably going to live in Belgium. You know, it's just a really difficult dynamic. It's hard. It's a big ask for people. So I don't blame American riders for not wanting to go over. Now, for me, I enjoy going to Europe. I don't want to live there. I, I will be the first one to tell you I do not want to live in Europe. But I love visiting there, you know. And when it's time to come home, every time, I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to get back to America. But the cultural side, the difference in scenery, the, the history... Um, there's just so much to learn about over there. It's such an old, uh, you know, Europe is such an old place versus America. You know, we're 250 years deep or whatever. Um, you know, Europe is thousands of years. You just, you go to these cities and you're like, oh yeah, you know, uh, 2,500 years ago, this happened here. And you're like, what? 
Like that doesn't even seem like calculable in my brain. Like my brain doesn't even do that math thousands of years ago versus, you know, you go somewhere in America and like, oh yeah, 1912, this happened. You're like, well, I probably have a relative that was here at some point, you know, like it's just a, it's so different in that way. So I, I love visiting there, but for a racer to move your, move there, move your whole life there, unless you don't have an option, you're probably not going to do it. And it's, it's in the end, the, the answer to this question, and this is what a 10 or 15 minute answer. Um, it's just, it's, it's not ideal. And you only see guys that don't have really another, any other choice. They don't have a great option here. They're at the end of the end of their rope. They're, they're out of options and they decide to make that move. Um, because of all the things I just said, it's really, it's a big ask and really inconvenient for most Americans. And you got to think too, I have to really kind of check myself because I've been there so much. It's easy for me. I know how things work. I know the nuances. I know how to get around. I know how to order food. I know where to go. I know how, you know, where grocery stores are. I know all those things because I've been, I've been to Europe like 200 times, which is insane. That is just an astounding stat. Even when I say it, I'm like, wow, like how is that even possible? And I'm rubbing my eyes thinking about 200 times to Europe. But that's reality and you just get comfortable. You get very familiar with how things work over there. For guys that have never been, it's culture shock, man. There's no better word for it than culture shock. And you're just like, get me out of here. I've got jet lag. I can't find anything that I can even eat. Nobody even understands what I'm saying. I'm trying to drive around. I can't read the signs. I'm gonna get in a car wreck because I don't know how the traffic lights work. Like it's just, (laughs) there's just a lot coming at you. Um, and to sign up for that willingly, not a lot of incentives to do it. So that's your answer. Congrats, Adam. Uh, you just got the longest answer, I think in the history of this podcast. And you also won a set of Pirelli tires. Thank you to all the sponsors of this podcast. I don't give them near enough credit for being a part of this. You know, everybody from Eric at works connection to, uh, Robert Carrico at fast foundry to Ryan at pro glow. I mean, all these people, uh, Grant, uh, Grandstone Boots, Wyatt at Grandstone Boots. All these people are just such a tremendous help and a huge part of this thing. Andy Gregg at Guts Racing. Um, all these guys, they have had my back from the get-go and um, I, I am very honored that they allow me to uh, to represent their brands. So thank you to them. And uh, if you guys have questions on sponsors ever or their products, please reach out. I, I love trying to connect people with, uh, with sponsors of the podcast. That's it. That's it. We'll be back next week. I'm going to stay in Boston after Foxborough and do some more work and then go straight to Denver. So I'll be coming to you next Sunday from the greater Boston area. See you.